Welcome this morning. Welcome. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning. Psalm 40. We've been in the Psalms now for a, a few months, actually. Uh, been a great series. Glad, to, glad for uh, this season to spend the time there. So it's been a joy. Psalm 40. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Um, I read an article this week. It was written about a month ago by a woman named Anna Mondel. Uh, Anna is a biblical counselor and a writer living in San Diego. And, and she wrote this article called um, Poetic Soul Care. And her article began uh, this way. It's about how God uses poetry to speak to and transform us. And so it caught my eye as we've been going through the Psalms. She, she began her article this way. She said, I never liked poetry. I liked certainty and I liked clarity, but poetry always seemed to function as a kind of artsy garnish on a food platter. It was, it was ornamental. It was inedible. It was really pointless. But then I found myself in the abyss. She said, abuse and illness and, and post-traumatic stress, it left me reeling. And I knew that God was real. I knew that he was all light. I knew that in him was no darkness. But beyond that, nothing in my life felt very certain. Now, maybe, maybe some of us have been in that place. She says, it was in that abyss that I learned to love poetry. She writes that suffering blasts us like a hand grenade. Suffering dizzies us and disorients us and it, dis it deafens us. And it can be difficult for us to absorb truth, she writes, when our pain is screaming. When our ears are ringing, as it were, right? But she says poetry is like a covert frequency. It's a secret skylight. And then she quotes uh, a modern poet uh, named Malcolm Geit, who I've able to spend with an amazing, brilliant man, professor at Cambridge. And he writes, poems are points of light that reveal or clarify something otherwise hidden and obscure. She goes on to point out that in the, in the book of Job, Job's, Job's friends, these quote-unquote miserable comforters, they claimed a clear and certain rationale for human suffering. They were trying to give easy, simple answers. And we hate that, don't we? When we're in the middle of those most painful, those darkest moments, when, when people offer us uh, mere platitudes, it's very unsatisfying. That's what Job's friends did. But Job, Job felt his way towards God with poetry. He says, that, he says in Job 3, let the day perish on which I was born. That's how, that, that speaks to his distress and his despair. Let the day uh, perish on which I was born. Let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. And God answered Job's distress, not with, not with simple answers, but with his presence and with poetry. He affectionately depicts himself as a midwife to the ocean, a gatherer of the snow, an obedience trainer to the constellations, as we see in Job 38. God's response to to human suffering, it can't be reduced to a single, simple, neat takeaway. Life's more complicated than that. And so God uses these vivid descriptions, not just statements to show that he is trustworthy and it writes. Suffering, of course, can lead us to the poetic because poetry, often more than prose, it, it hits us somewhere deep. 
It gets at that kind of internal ache that we're all feeling in the midst of pain. And and it gives us words, or at least helps us interpret maybe um, our feelings of of being lost or being unsure or, or feeling hurt or vulnerable. I'm sure many of you, likely, uh, can identify with what Anna wrote and, and thinking really of poetry uh, really as kind of useless, as just an artsy garnish. It just it feels so fluffy, right? So it maybe feels very irrelevant. Poetry books are rarely bestsellers. And yet it's important for us to note that that this is one of the primary ways that God chose to speak to his people. How he deals with his people, both in the midst of pain and in the midst of joy. That article will go on to say that, that, that over 30% of the Bible, 30% of the Bible is poetry. That's probably a slightly low estimate. Over one-third of God's word is written not just to give information, but to evoke imagination, ignite emotion, play with rhythm. The, the, she, she, she notes that the first time a human speaks in Scripture is when Adam responds to seeing Eve for the first time, this woman that God brought before him, and he responds with, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He, all he can do is express it in poetry. There's something deeper going on here than prose allow. When God's people celebrate their liberation from Egypt, they burst into song with this poetic imagery, as in Exodus 15, this song of Moses. When God's people are, are oppressed and exiled, they turn to the lyrics of lament. When Mary miraculously mothers the Messiah, she sings the Magnificat. When Simeon meets the infant Jesus for the first time, he responds with words of poetry and prophecy. And on and on and on. At many times in our lives, we can neither offer nor receive any real certainty or perfect clarity, either because maybe, the, maybe our joy in that moment is so great or our sorrow is too deep. And we've seen this throughout the book of Psalms. We've seen this even in the Psalms that we've covered so far. This, this, the, the way that God uses poetry to convey something deeper for us, something more profound than prose might allow. So let's read this passage together. Let's read this ancient poem together. It begins there, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And David writes in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. You see this poetic language David's using. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And he says, so many will see, many will fear and put their trust in the Lord. Indeed, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. David says, you've multiplied, O Lord, my God, your, your, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. And so I will proclaim and I will tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And he says there in verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you've given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. But then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And so I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness. I've spoken of your salvation. 
I've not concealed your steadfast love, your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And David says, for evils have encompassed me beyond measure. In fact, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. I'm I'm blinded, confused. He says, they're more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails within me. So be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, shaming the Lord, shaming his people, shaming David. But may all who seek you rejoice. May all who seek you be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And David ends this way. He says, as for me, I am, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. He says, you are my help. You are my deliverer. So do not delay, oh my God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this word. Thank you that you've spoken to us, God. You've given us your truth. You have revealed yourself to us. And God, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us this morning. God, a challenge to us. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see that, that, that superscription at the very top of your passage there. I'm sure it's in most of your Bibles that this is a psalm of David. And actually about half of the psalms in, uh, in the Old Testament are psalms of David, about half of the 150. Um, but there's, there's no, in, in Psalm 40, there's no real indication of where this song fits into David's life. Sometimes in the superscription it gives a kind of hint that this happened when David was struggling with this. But there's no real indicator of, of where this is happening in David's life. But we do get a sense that David is not doing well. We get a sense from the psalm that David is not in a good place. David is not doing well. We, we see there in verse 12, verse 12 actually kind of anchors us that this is where David is. This is, this is David's current situation while he's writing this psalm. So in, in verse 12, you see David says, The evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're, they're more than the hairs of my head. i just overwhelmed by it all. My heart fails within me. So this is David's... This is David's current predicament, and as, as is always, almost always the case with David uh, and with all of us, that his, his problems, his current crisis is really a mixture of, of these external evils in the world, the, the, the evils uh, that have encompassed him beyond number, but also his own iniquity. He's saying, my, I can, my own sin is blinding me. My own sin is, is clouding my judgment, and we've seen this already in the Psalms. David doesn't go into much detail here, but it seems pretty clear that, that part, at least part of what he's dealing with are these, are these enemies, who, which is pretty common for David too, right? He's dealing with people who want to who take him down, who want to shame him and his nation and his God, his people, who, who want to hurt him or humiliate him. So he's struggling with all this. The problems of the world are just caving in around him. And his own sin is blinding him. It seems like in this moment, David is utterly lost. And so what does David do? What does David do in that moment where he feels overwhelmed and blind and confused? He writes this poem. 
He writes a song, and he, and he even, throughout this song, he kind of shows us his thought process, how, how he's dealing uh, with the crisis. So verse, verse 12 describes David's current predicament, his, his current miserable state, but the poem doesn't start there. The poem doesn't start with, with David um, complaining about sort of where he's at in that moment. The psalm begins with David looking backwards at what God had delivered him from before, right? He, he begins the psalm with, I waited, I waited for the Lord. Before, past tense. There was a time before when I waited patiently for God. And, and in that moment, he inclined to me. He heard me. He responded to me. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet on the rock and he made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. In other words, David is saying, I'm not sure how I'm going to get out of this current problem. I cannot see my way out of this current crisis that I'm struggling with, this current moment of suffering. I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. But he looks back and he says, but, I, but as I look back, I can remember, this is not the first time that my life has felt like it was falling apart. There was a time before when I felt like I was in a pit and I waited for the Lord and God delivered me. He moved, he heard me, he responded to me. He describes this in very poetic, very vivid language. He says, I was in a pit. You ever felt like that? He says, I was, I was in a I couldn't get out, right? I was in this pit of destruction. I was in this miry bog. I felt, I felt trapped. I couldn't see my way out. I couldn't claw my way out of this problem. I felt helpless. I felt vulnerable. I felt weak. The phrase here, uh, this, the, at least in my Bible, in, in the ESV, uh, is translated pit of destruction. I read this week another, uh, another writer, Robert Alter, who's a professor of Hebrew, uh, specialist in, in ancient languages. He wrote, this, this really could be translated to a pit of noise. A pit of noise. Because the image that this, this Hebrew is trying to convey is the image of, it's like waves just crashing down on you. Right? Just one wave after another, after another, that you're, you're blinded by it. You can't hear any, all you hear is chaos. You can't, you don't know which way is up. It's this, it's this pit of noise. It's this sense of being overwhelmed, being utterly helpless. This is amazing poetic language that David is using. It's more, it's more effective than prose, right? It's, 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 it's more effective because it, it's the metaphor that sticks. We can imagine ourselves in the pit. This is kind of similar to what, what the Apostle Paul does in the New Testament. You may remember the story where Paul talks about he has a, he has a thorn in his flesh. Do you guys remember that? But, they, but Paul, never, Paul never says what that thorn in the flesh is, right? And David here never says what his pit is, what this pit of noise, what this pit of destruction is. There's something there. He's, he's, he's not giving specifics, but in that sense, it's, it's allowing us all to kind of imagine our own pits. Imagine our own thorns in the side. It opens it up. This imagery opens it up for us to relate. And we can relate. Can you relate to being in a pit so confused you don't know your way out? You got yourself into this problem. Maybe you did something. Maybe something was done to you. Unless you're, unless you're relatively young or or extraordinarily fortunate, um, or, or, or probably hopelessly arrogant, right? Then you can admit that in your life, you've been in that place 
you've been in that pit. Maybe some of you are in that place now. You don't know your way out. I've been there. And in that pit, helpless, what was David's response? David's response was waiting. It was just waiting. It says I, he, he waited and he waited and he waited. You see there, the words are repeated. In my, in my version, it says, I waited patiently. Uh, but the words are repeated to give the sense of uh, in, in waiting, I waited. So I was waiting and then I was still waiting and then I had to wait. That's what it felt. David, he didn't have anything else to do. <clears throat> he knew he couldn't solve the problem. And so he was there. He was brought to a place of dependence. He was brought to this place of helplessness. And he says, God saved me. God inclined his ear to me. He, he, God, got, God got on his belly and he reached his arms down and he pulled me out of this pit. He got me out of this pit. He did for me, <clears throat> he did for me what I could not do for myself. He lifted me up from this place of destruction. He, he lifted me up when it felt like, felt like waves were just crashing down one after another. He, he lifted me from the slime. He brought me out of this, this hole. I felt like I was sinking. And he put my feet on a rock. He, 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 gave, he steadied my feet when it felt like I would never be steady again. Have you been there? You just feel like everything maybe is spinning out of control that the sinner cannot hold. David's like, I, didn't, I, I couldn't imagine feeling firm in my life. And, and God brought me out of this pit and he set me on a rock. And more than that, he gave me a new song to sing. This new perspective on the pain. He gave me some of the new reasons to praise. One, one writer and, and preacher, A.P. Gibbs, said, he used to put it this way, out of the mire and into the choir. That's probably what you'll remember this morning because it's poetry, right? That's what's going to stick. Out of the mire and into the choir. This is what David is experiencing. And you can see what David is doing, even, even like what we were singing this morning. You know, we were singing, bless the Lord, O my soul. So who's that song to? That song is to yourself, right? You were telling your soul, soul, bless the Lord. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done for you. David is, <clears throat> David is preaching the gospel to himself, as it were. He's reminding himself of a time when he, he, was, <clears throat> he was rescued from this new kind of suffering, a suffering he hadn't expected, a suffering he couldn't deal with on his own. He was rescued from that new suffering, and he was given a new song, a new perspective, a new voice. There are, there are things that we go through in this life. Having, you know, having been um, a pastor here in this church for uh, over 13 years, realized that this month in September, uh, 13 years ago, is when we started Christ Church. Having been with many of you for many years, um, I know that you have gone through things, that on the others, painful things, terrible things, lines from which you cannot return, that in those moments of pain, being brought through those moments, on the other side of it, you're given a new song. You're given a new perspective. You're softened. You're molded, you're conforming more and more to the image of Christ. You're given new, brand new reasons to praise. Sometimes God re reveals and then heals wounds from our past we didn't even know we had. 
That's painful. Sometimes God teaches us dependence through a terrible bankruptcy. Sometimes he carries us through the the wreckage of divorce. Sometimes he demonstrates his, his, his unexplainable peace to us. He meets us with peace in the midst of unexpected illness or procedure. We go through life and we sometimes suffer in deep and transformative ways. But God meets us there. He comes down to us. He, he pulls us out of the pit or he pulls us through the storm. And we have new words of thanks on the other side. We have a deeper sense of gratitude. We have, we have this un, unanticipated um, thankfulness, dependence. Or at least simply just a new perspective on our, on our past that makes us realize what felt, like, what felt like hopeless, hopelessness to me, God has now somehow redeemed. In other words, in the, in, the midst of, in the midst of his current suffering, David is looking back at his life and he's, remembered, he's remembering that God, when I was in this situation before, when I felt like there was, there was no hope before, even then, God, God not only saved me from this crisis... He actually used that crisis to change me for the better. And I had a new song to sing. Let me ask you this morning. What do you need a new song about in your life this morning? Does your marriage need a new song? Do your kids does your, does your relationship with God need a new song, a new song of refreshment, a new song of resurrection? Do you need a new song about how you, how you view yourself? You need to remember what God says about you, not just what maybe other people or what you say to yourself. Do you need a new song about your past? Maybe about what you've done or, or about what's been done to you or a new song about your future, what God might have for you? You've been singing the same song for too long? You need that new perspective, that new voice, that new sense of vision that God can give you, this this deep sense from your gut, this gratitude, thankfulness, this praise in the midst of suffering? What pit are you in this morning? Who are you? What do you what's your cry? What's your heart's cry? Who are you crying to? Some of us are looking for salvation in the wrong place. Some of us are wearing our fingers out trying to claw out of this pit that we cannot get out of on our own. Some of us have spent our whole lives digging a pit right in front of us with our own sin and with our own selfishness and we've fallen right in. Some of us, some of us wake up and realize we're in a pit and we have no idea how to get out of it. Spiritual, relational, Mental, physical, financial, social, vocational. Some of us are just realizing now that we've been a pit. We've been in a pit for many, many years. David comforts us. Scriptures comfort us. David says, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Joyful is the man who makes the Lord his trust. He says in verse 5, God has multiplied his wondrous deeds for you. He's multiplied his thoughts for you, literally his his plans for you. 
Nothing can compare to him, David says. So he's reminding himself, and God is reminding all of us this morning, that, that even in the midst of suffering, God is, he is multiplying his goodness to you. He's, multi, he's, he's just doing more and more and more good things to you. And you've got to remind yourself because you don't always see it. He's saying God is multiplying his thoughts towards you. He's multiplying his plans towards you. He's got plans for you. But we need to be reminded. This is David's cry. This is David's plea. And David, like a good leader, uh, like a, the good king that he is, he's not perfect, but he is this man after God's own heart. And, he, and he, he realizes that this experience is not just for him, but it's for his people. He, he says, so, so that many will see, so that many will fear and put their trust in the Lord. David says, I'm going to proclaim, I'm going to tell this story, I'm going to share this good news of deliverance with the congregation. He says, I'm going to hold nothing back. I'm not going to restrain my lips. Now, this is actually difficult, what David is saying, right? It's difficult to share the story of God's deliverance of you out of a pit. Requires us to admit that we were in a pit. That's not easy to do. Maybe God has resurrected your marriage after a spouse was unfaithful. That's not an easy story to tell. Maybe God has delivered you from an alcohol or drug addiction or pornography addiction or shopping addiction. We carry so much shame with those stories. It's hard to open up. Maybe God has cared for you after, after serious financial mismanagement or after you were convicted of a crime, or maybe it was, it was about what, not about what you did, but about what happened to you. You were abused, or you were betrayed, or you were humiliated. David says, I will not restrain my lips. There are, there are people in your life, church, that need to hear your story. That need to know that they're not alone in their pit. They need to hear, we need to hear stories of God's deliverance. David says, I'm not going to hold back. And David had his own story to tell, right? David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. David is a man that we probably wouldn't have up on stage sharing this, reading this passage. Right? And not only the things that David did, but the stuff that David experienced. He was betrayed. He was, he was, he had wayward children. He he suffered, I mean, if you read the Psalms, he he suffered with, with deep depression. I mean, crippling anxiety. David says, I'm going to hold nothing back. I'm going to share this story. David ends his poem with such honesty and I think with such hope. He he says, as for me, I I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. That's such good news. Such perspective, right? That's how we understand our identity. That's how we understand who we are. David David is coming to terms as the king, as this great warrior poet. He's coming to terms with, God, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at your righteousness and your holiness. I'm looking at this mess I've made in my life. God, I I I am poor and I am needy. But you've got me. You're thinking about me. You know more about my problems than I know about my problems. You know more about my way out of these problems than I know about. He says, you are my help. You are my deliverer. 
Oh my God, do not delay. Old Testament uh, writer and professor David uh, Kidner, he refers to this as a, as a sort of self-forgetful joy. So it's somehow on the one hand, you can know your own frailty, your own brokenness, your own neediness. But on the same time, at the same time, you can, you can go, I know God is so strong. He is thinking of me. He will deliver me. I am not, he has not forgotten me. I can, I can know myself, but I can forget about myself and be joyful in him. I can, lift my, I can lift my eyes away from my, my problems and my crisis and my suffering and I can look up to him and I can finally breathe. The psalm begins and ends this way. David says in verse one, I'm, I'm, I waited patiently for the Lord and then he ends, but don't delay. Right? You feel the tension? I'm waiting patiently for you, Lord, but hurry up. Hurry up. Take your time, but let's get on with it. We can feel that, right? This kind of patient impatience. We're trusting the Lord, but we're hurting. We're we're suffering. We're in crime. We We don't know our way out of this. And so David gives us those words. He says, yeah, David says, yeah, I'm waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting, God. But hurry up. I need you in this moment. That's his cry. That's his plea. David acknowledges here, and this is important. David acknowledges here in verse six that, that getting out of this pit involves more than just his good behavior. It involves more even than his obedience and his sacrifice. He says in verse six, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And he says, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So you can see the contrast there, right? The sacrifices and the offerings and then God's will, his his word being in his heart. Now, it's interesting that in the New Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews picks this idea up. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is, is contemplating Psalm 40. And instead of quoting David in Psalm 40, attributes these words of Psalm 40 to Jesus. So in fact, if you want to turn with me, turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, I'll, I'll read starting in verse Towards the back of the New Testament, Hebrews 10, verse 5. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. The writer says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now we know that this is a psalm of David, but as a writer of Hebrews looks back, he's saying, look what Jesus said. It doesn't say David said this, but as Jesus said. Now you can see that the words uh, that we just read in Hebrews are slightly different than the words that were in Psalm 40. And you see that instead of saying in, in Psalm 40, you have given me an open ear, it says a body you have prepared for me. So what's going on there? Well, it's very simple. It's that, um, that this... 
This is a Greek writer trying to make sense of this Hebrew idiom. That in Hebrew, when you say this, this statement, that I want you to open my ear, clean out my ear, carve out my ear, what you're saying is you're, you're communicating this, you're giving yourself to someone. This implies hearing and obeying and giving yourself over to another. And so this Greek writer is trying to make sense of this Hebrew idiom. And so they translate this passage, a body you have prepared for me. In other words, Scripture's teaching that this, this, this descendant of David, Jesus, who ultimately provided what God demanded, not, not more offerings, not more sacrifices, but this once and for all sacrifice of his body given over in accordance with his Father's will. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verses 9 through 14. He says, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. The first being the sacrifice and offering, the second being this law in the heart. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away our sin. But Christ has offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning it was over, it was finished, the law was fulfilled. That was the last sacrifice that needed to be made, waiting until the time when his enemies would be made a footstool. For by this single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. David is acknowledging, I can never get out of this pit on my own. There's, I can't make enough sacrifices. You need this perfect body. You need the law in the heart. And the, and the New Testament writer in the book of Hebrews is looking back saying, the only one that can do that is Jesus. The only one who can get you. Not, not only does God incline his ear to us, not only does God deliver us from all the, all the miry bogs that we find ourselves in, in this world, Scripture is teaching us that God has, has descended in Christ to this ultimate pit, the pit of death, to give us life in paradise forever. He's saying, in the midst of all your unshakiness in this life, in the midst of always feeling like you don't have a sure footing, God says, eternally, I'm going to sit you on a rock. So that you can know, so that you can be reminded, in all those shaky times, there is an eternal hope for you. That you have been taken out of that deep and final pit of death. You will be seated with him in paradise on his throne forever. And in the, in the last book of the New Testament, it says in Revelation 5, it says we will be there with him in this paradise on his throne and we will be singing, it says, we will be singing a new song. And that new song is worthy are you, worthy are you, O God, worthy are you, O Lamb. You were slain for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You are worthy. You can save what seemed unsavable. You are worthy. Now, if we can know and believe and bring ourselves to sing that poem, that will transform us. Knowing that there is hope in the midst of all the uncertainty and shakiness of this life, that you have been given a firm foundation in Christ, it gives you hope in the deepest pit. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for... Christ, for his sacrifice, for being 
for him rescuing us out of a pit some of us didn't even know we were in. Some of us didn't even think we needed rescuing. And God, not only have you solved our eternal problem of sin and death, but God, you have have given yourself to us. You are present with us. You incline your ear to us in the midst of all the sufferings of this life. So we look to you as our only hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.